Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm your host today, Zach Griffiths, Senior U.S. Investment Grade Strategist. And joining me is Jim Dunn, our Senior Consumer Analyst. Jim, thanks for joining us. Hi, Zach. Thanks for having me. All right. So we've gotten to a pretty interesting point in the macro backdrop. We've got a lot of cross currents in terms of the economic data and what's going on with inflation how that's impacting margins and other fundamental metrics for companies across a broad swath. But we're going to focus on the consumer goods companies today with Jim, who just put out a piece focused on margins and cash flow and kind of how that ties into the inflation backdrop. So I think this is particularly important as we're recording this on July 10th. We have CPI coming up, so a lot of good, important themes to kind of tackle here. And so, Jim, just to start us off, I think one of the fundamental questions you tried to tackle in this piece is kind of, are the price hikes that companies are still doing in your space cost justified, or is there more of an opportunistic aspect to it? So what's your thoughts on that topic? Yeah, I suppose that's a little bit of a philosophical question, depending on who you're asking. Management teams are certainly advocating that they're cost justified. There are several metrics to support it. Specifically, if you look at margins, both gross margins and operating margins for most of the names within our space, if you do a comparison to pre-pandemic levels, most companies uh, have seen margin compression. And thing to note though, in terms of magnitude is gross margin compression has generally been larger than operating margin compression, which speaks to costs of goods inflation. And that's certainly what management teams like to point to. But there have been mechanisms utilized to offset the impact, uh, lower promotion dollars, efficiencies, cost cuts to minimize the operating margin impact. So the magnitude of operating margin compression has been lower. There are specific line items that management teams continue to point to uh, as justifying the cost increases, although the, the amount of line items have declined since the peak inflationary period. Now, I said it was a little bit of a philosophical question because I think ultimately, so long as demand supports it, you can argue that they're justified, right? And demand is much more elevated relative to pre-pandemic. So consumers are cons- to, to absorb uh, many of these price increases, although pushback has increased more recently. And there's a couple other factors that I'm sure we'll talk to uh, contributing to that. The thing to note, though, is that in terms of the philosophical debate, you've got companies most recently like General Mills advocating for additional price increases while increasing their dividend by a greater percentage rate than forecasted COGS inflation for fiscal 2023. So from a consumer's perspective, you're getting a lot of pressure from inflation all around. And ideally, consumers don't want to stomach that, but the demand is there and it's supporting. So I think 
ultimately, the short answer is the argument weighs in favor of raising prices to pass through costs so long as the consumer accepts it. And I think there's enough data to support it. So in terms of costs, it seems like input prices are finally starting to come down, but margins are still generally under pressure. How are you sort of thinking about cost inflation as a whole and going forward based on what you've heard from your management teams and our margins and the trends that you're seeing now and expecting going forward? Is that a big fundamental concern of yours? How, how are you thinking about all of those dynamics? I think that it was a much larger concern. When inflation immediately started to spike, the level of client inquiry we got about potential impacts on credit metrics was meaningful. As companies began to take pricing and catch up to cost and inflation, those fears waned a little bit. I think they're starting to come back a little bit more recently as concerns continue to bubble around a downturn and as the consumer just becomes more cost conscious. But from a credit metric perspective, there hasn't been as much erosion of metrics like leverage as you might imagine, given the size of margin deterioration for most companies. The main reason behind that is the top line has increased so much, both because of price increases and, and underlying demand accelerating. So one thing that we looked at in our recent report was free cash flow levels and trying to compare those to pre-pandemic levels. And what we found is while most companies have seen margin compression, most companies have also seen pretty sizable improvement in the ratio of free cash flow to total debt. And that really just speaks to the, the higher top line. And many management teams have spoken more towards profit dollars than profit margins. And ultimately, that means that they're just willing to concede a little bit on margin because they're keeping cash flow stable or increasing cash flows. So from a fundamental perspective, it's, it's not a huge concern. It's actually the cost inflation margin compression has sort of coincided with management teams generally taking a little bit of a more conservative posture towards leverage targets, long-term leverage targets. There are exceptions to this on a company-specific basis. We can speak to that in a little bit, but for the most part, it hasn't resulted in significant deterioration in credit metrics. So that's helpful. I mean, it's interesting to think about how being able to pass on price increases, which have been substantial in demand, has really held up. One of the things that we've looked at quite a bit on the strategy team as we kind of form our views is looking at excess savings in the system, how that's come down from maybe nearly two trillion at certain points over the past couple of years to maybe closer to 500 billion now. And one of the things about those metrics is it really doesn't take into account what of that cash has been put to work either to pay down debt or is invested in the stock market or bonds. And so when you think about the health of the consumer or household balance sheets and how that flows through to demand for consumer goods, kind of where do you think we are in that cycle? I guess just to frame up how we're thinking about it, we think that a consumer can remain a tailwind for the U.S. economy as a whole in 2023, but the tailwind from, let's just say, excess savings is diminishing. Is that kind of consistent with your view or are you looking at it a little differently? Yeah, as always, when discussing the decline in excess savings, uh, I think it's critical to look also, as we always do, to the unemployment level because it's not just, as you well know, Zach, it's not just savings that consumers are using to fund their lifestyles. 
And generally, in terms of discretionary mindsets, we do think so long as the consumer is gainfully employed, they will be able to continue to spend where they want to. However, the decline in savings rate does have it has a mental impact on consumers. Uh, I would wager to say that it, it, if your savings are declining, you're generally going to adopt a more conservative spending outlook. It does serve as an important cushion for a lot of consumers. I think more so in terms of spending habits, it impacts the discretionary categories than consumer staples categories. And there are certain areas that we've seen a pullback in demand. When this is distinct from consumer staples, it's more in your discretionary categories. Like I said, so take a company, for example, like Newell Brands, which has had products that were extremely popular during the pandemic that catered to mid-pandemic habits and lifestyles. And of course, in the post-pandemic world, a lot of those habits have changed. The consumers are spending more time outside of the house. So it's a combination of a reduction in savings and what we've called category fatigue, where the consumer just want to spend in certain categories. So it's showing up on a category by category and product specific basis. And there are other factors influencing ultimately company results as well, like retail inventory management. But from a consumer mindset, just to speak to the strength of the consumer, if you look at one of the most discretionary sectors that we cover as a firm and that I look at in the travel space and cruise lines, the consumer is continuing to spend robustly on travel and, and there's no sign that it's slowing. So it's very bifurcated out there. I think generally, so long as the unemployment metrics remain healthy, it's going to support continued spending. But as the excess savings dwindles, I think there ultimately is some sort of mental impact on the consumer in terms of their future decisions. Definitely. So that's certainly consistent. And one of the points you made here that you discuss in the report that I think will be interesting to expand on is trade down behavior by consumers as this excess savings or buffer is diminished, perhaps consumers feel a little bit more conservative. But I certainly take your point that if you're making a paycheck, you're going to be able to keep spending and, and you might be more likely to do some reallocating of that amount versus an actual reduction in spending. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of trade down activity and what you're expecting and maybe who you think to, to be the biggest beneficiaries? and the, maybe the hardest hit by that behavior going forward. Yeah, I'd say if you go back a couple quarters when really trade down discussions started in earnest, the perspective from the corporate level was that it was mostly the lowest income tier that was experiencing the largest magnitude of trade down. I think they were most impacted by inflation, generally had lower savings, ate through them more rapidly than other consumers. That's expanded a little bit. And I think it tracks with some of the media narrative as well. Uh, consumers do a lot just out of habit and I think bemoan a lot of price inflation without necessarily changing habit. But as the media narrative starts to influence it a bit more, I think you could see more significant trade down. And so there has been a lot of attention drawn recently to this idea of greedflation. Of course, you, we started this podcast by talking about whether cost cuts are justified. I think if you ask any consumer, they, they would answer no. And so as they become more aware of it generally, I think it maybe it could influence purchasing patterns a, a, a bit more. That's not to say that brand loyalty isn't important, but I think the media narrative is starting to influence it a little bit. And then perhaps an even larger factor is the influence of significant, of large retailers in, in this country. So Walmart and Target, for example, 
And on Walmart's most recent earnings call, they specifically drew attention to the the high cost of food for consumers. So far, retailers have been fairly lenient and working with suppliers to pass through pricing. But it seems like that tone has shifted a little bit where they might push back a little bit on future increases and maybe start to emphasize their private label products a bit more. And so we could see an acceleration of trade down. There are certain categories that we um, have historically seen, which are more susceptible to trade down than others. For example, in the uh, paper goods products like tissues and bath tissues and uh, paper towels and such, the names like Kimberly Clark or Procter and Gamble in some aspects, and also a Clorox Co, for example, in bags and wraps and, and wipes. Historically, we've seen in these categories where, where these names lead in price increases, there's instances where they concede market share. So that's something we're watching with those names specifically. For center of the store or grocery names generally um, in the manufactured food space, inflation tends to be a bit stickier than, for example, pure play protein names. And we're starting to see that. I think protein uh, in some instances may be shifting towards deflationary uh, for some categories. Um, but for the most part, it's it's dis, disinflation for the food manufacturers. And so as it relates to trade down, the companies that we cover haven't necessarily been significantly impacted, but it's one of the key things that we're monitoring going forward. And we expect it to increase as the year progresses. That's interesting to hear even the potential for a deflationary shift in proteins. I know that we're focused on at least hopefully seeing disinflation and an outright deflation has certainly been hard to come by in this cycle. Kind of with CPI coming out, can you talk a little bit about the trends that you're seeing in, I guess, consumer food inflation? I mean, just off the top of my head, thinking about the last few prints, we've seen at least on a month over month basis, some improvement there with with readings downshifting, obviously the moves on a year-over-year basis are still elevated. But based on what you're seeing and hearing from your companies, how do you think about the path of food inflation going forward and how that could impact the broader inflation picture? Yeah, I'd say on a trailing 12-month basis, we saw price increases in the low double-digit to mid-team sort of range. And that's a significant comp lap as you make it through a year out. And that's contributing to the disinflation. But take, for example, General Mills, which was in the market with their results uh, a couple weeks ago. And they're pointing to sort of in the mid-single digit range for price increases for the next fiscal year. So there's a significant disinflation there, but we're a long ways from deflation. It is important to note, though, that this does, I think, feed through in a, in a potentially meaningful way to the Fed's considerations because food inflation has outpaced core inflation going back to mid or late 2020. I think the trend started in September 2021. And the delta between the rate of growth between food and core inflation has been compressing in the recent results. And we expect that to continue going forward. And if it's able to you know, fall below the, the core inflation trend, I think that ultimately supports the Fed's mission going forward. So for those still arguing for a soft landing, I think that could be a potential key consideration. Yeah, we're in the bumpy landing camp, and it's been interesting to hear from the Fed recently with the hawkish pause in June, kind of one of the more confusing messages that I can recall seeing in my 
years of watching the Fed. So it'll be interesting to see what we get from the June CPI print released this week and sort of the backdrop of inflation or disinflation that we're seeing. You're certainly seeing headline come down, expected to be 3% year over year, as you are seeing food and energy come down a fair bit while core remains stuck at expected to be 5%. So that's certainly something that we're keeping a close eye on. One of the things that we've sort of touched on but haven't gotten into too much detail is the pricing and volume trends that you've seen recently as far as consumer behavior or price elasticities across the various companies that you cover. Kind of what are you seeing now and and how does it compare to pre-pandemic norms? And we can break that down between food and beverage and health and personal care, however you want to look at that. Yeah, uh, I think I'll just, I'll speak to the consumer staples universe generally because it's it's fairly similar. So that includes household personal care and food and beverage. What we've seen in the last four quarters, and I think it extends a little bit beyond that, is that, well, let's go back to the pandemic to start. During the pandemic, price and volume were, were both increasing because demand was so high. As the inflation uh, cycle picked up, the pace of volume increases declined and that was supported also from a little bit of deceleration in consumption as folks as we emerged from the pandemic over the last four quarters prices uh on general and what we're getting here is price times volume equals organic sales growth essentially over the last four quarters on average we've had uh for the companies that report these metrics within our peer group over 10 percent price growth and volumes have generally on average declined. The decline four quarters ago was maybe one or, or below 1%, but it's accelerated. And I think we're pushing up closer to maybe down three to 4%, but that's against still price increases of over 10%. So the net result is that organic sales growth is still markedly positive. The way the management teams have spoken to this is that they do want to balance the two going forward and it is important to have volume growth as well. So we'll, we'll see how that shakes out. This is a drastically different picture from what it was prior to the pandemic. I know you asked about that. <clears throat> Before the pandemic, organic sales for many companies were called generally in the flat to up 2% range. Some companies were struggling even to maintain stable organic sales growth. And generally, what you saw was that anytime you took price increases, there was normally an equal amount of offset in, in volume. All else to go, I think companies prefer to move lower volume at higher prices because it's better for the margin. Pricing power is generally noticeably stronger now than it was pre-pandemic. Management teams have spoken to <clears throat> elasticities being well below historic levels. The elast price elasticity has started to increase per management comments in the last couple of quarters. And it's our expectation that that will continue as the year progresses. So we're seeing price elasticities are, are well below historical levels, but they're starting to normalize to a certain extent or at yeah. least move closer toward pre-pandemic. Yeah, it's tough for us uh, to, to measure that. And we're, we're very much reliant on any data that the companies give us themselves or, or management comments. I would say that on average, we're still below historic levels. And, and the, you can just look at the organic sales drivers to support that. And like I said, in the most recent quarter, on average for the companies that report the individual metrics, prices were up 10 to 12%, whereas volumes were down maybe three to 4%. That speaks to much lower elasticity than prior to the pandemic. Right. And so one thing that you point out in the piece that I thought was interesting is kind of how the, the pricing cycle 
and how long it takes for cost inflation to get passed through to retail prices and the consumer. And so that was an important consideration as inflation took off beginning in 2021. Let's say that's kind of when it started to ramp up. So what is that typical lag and how do you think about that? I know I mentioned at the outset that we are seeing month over month outright declines in, in headline PPI. And so thinking about when we could start to potentially see that in the CPI numbers. And I know you can't take your sector and apply it to every aspect of consumer prices, but can you talk a little bit about that dynamic? Yeah, I think the best way to think about it is if there are one phase of cost increases, one spike in, in inflation, we would generally expect based on company comments for it to take 60 to 90 days for price increases in response to that spike to make its way through to consumers. It seemed like that got stretched out during the last inflationary cycle because there were so many rounds of inflation spikes. But on average, I think it's safe to say it, it at least a quarter uh, for, for those to make their way through. Uh, and it creates a gradient as the rate of decline extends for multi-period phase or, or whatnot. So right now, what we're considering is that if you do have names like Walmart saying we need to draw attention to high cost of food, that it's probably going to be back end of this year and maybe in the fourth quarter when if they do start to take action, maybe start to see those results. Because I think it's going to be a little push and pull where producers really want to hold on to price increases because it's certainly benefiting them. But I think 60 to 90 days is what we've heard. Um, so on the high end of that, it's, it's around a quarter. And so this has all been extremely helpful and kind of, especially for me, framing up my thinking around inflation and of course, what that means for the Fed, what that can mean for the broader markets. But let's talk about what companies you've either changed your rec on or want to highlight are maybe likely to outperform given some of these cross currents from a margin and free cash flow perspective. Hit us with some of the, the key takeaways from a, a name by name perspective and recommendations that you either are maintaining or adjusting. Certainly. I think names that, well, let's start with names that we're concerned about. We've identified names like Clorox, Kimberly Clark, a little bit to a lesser degree, ConAgra Brands, and also uh, Colgate Palmolive. Clorox, Colgate, and Kimberly Clark are three names that I've all seen the most meaningful margin compression relative to pre-pandemic. It speaks a bit to their exposure to underlying com commodity inflation that's a larger magnitude than most of the other names. And in these categories in particular, we, we tend to see the consumer trade down more rapidly than they would in other categories. So that speaks to a greater level of price elasticity and perhaps lower pricing power. And for a name like Clorox, historically, when they lead in pricing in certain categories, specifically bags and wraps, we've seen them concede market share. And they recently took uh, a price increase uh, in that and other categories ahead of competition. So we're a little bit concerned going into the next quarter, specifically in areas like bags and wraps. And, and also, I think in Kingsford, uh, charcoal, there's some other headwinds that retailers spoke to with a wet, wet spring. And I think competition and promotions have increased in that category as well. So we're cautious on a name like Clorox. And then when you make similar valuations with Colgate and Kimberly Clark, we just think there's more attractive relative value considerations where that you can take exposure to while avoiding any event risk around private label 
pressure or further margin compression. I mentioned ConAgra Brands. That's a name that saw a leverage increase as we emerged from the pandemic and as the inflationary cycle picked up. Leverage spiked well above management's targets at the high end of what you would consider reasonable for low triple B name. They got a long runway from the rating agencies to reduce leverage and management took a more conservative long-term approach to its leverage target, reducing it from three and a half to three times. But leverage is still elevated. And while they have made progress in the last two quarters, if, if all of a sudden we start to see more private label pressure or, or, or trade down at the consumer level and that stalls out, there could be uh, ratings downgrade risk. And as a cuspy name, given that it's low triple B, we've remained cautious uh, on that name. And then just to offset names that we're concerned about, there are names that have done well um, during the pandemic uh, in terms of managing the cost inflation environment. And a name like Kraft Heinz, for example, is a name that we like and we think that we'll continue to be able to manage through the inflationary environment. Those are all investment grade names. I think it's worth mentioning a high yield name that we cover in Newell Brands because they represent a lot of the headwinds that I mentioned earlier with category fatigue. And so, the issue that's happening at Newell, and this is a name that we remain cautious on, both because we're not convinced that this operating story has stabilized and we think leverage continue to increase and the potential further ratings pressure. From a consumer's perspective, Newell did great during the pandemic. Their categories benefited from pandemic demand, but as trends shifted from goods to services, they started to get a meaningful tailwind, and then they were impacted by retailer inventory management actions with Retailers like Walmart keeping inventories lower than they had historically because they knew consumer demand wasn't there. And this happened at the same time that Newell was experiencing significant cost inflation. So they didn't really have the pricing power to pass through higher costs. In the last quarter, they spoke to taking structural price increases that they argue are necessary for the long-term sustainability of various products in their portfolio. If they're not able to get those price increases, could get real hairy for some of their brands if, if they're not sustainable from a, from a margin perspective. And we're not convinced that demand's all of a sudden going to come back uh, for those categories. So we'll see there. That's certainly a name that we're, we're definitely cautious on. Awesome. Well, I'm going to end with one. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Jim. Upside, downside, or on target or on consensus CPI print this Wednesday? Mm -hmm. I think the trend's been more or less on point. So I'm going to say on consensus, but I do think that we're going to start trend to surprising favorably in terms of the inflation equation. And maybe food disinflation contributes to that, but I think you're starting to see some encouraging prints from rent inflation on a year-over-year -year basis as well. So for the next print, I'm going to say consensus, but I do think we start to see some improvement. Love it. That works great for our Fed call as well. So Jim Dunn, thank you so much for your time. This was extremely helpful and good chatting as always. Yeah, nice talking to you as well, Zach. All right. Thank you all for joining and we will catch you next time on No More Risk Better. Have a good one. Credit sites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.